Good morning, family. It's great to see so many of you here on this uh, rainy slash sunny slash strange weather morning. We're just so grateful that all of you made it out today. Um, If you weren't with us here last Sunday, we started a new series that will be in this fall on the book of Ruth. And we're calling this series Love Without Limits, which is taken from one of the great themes of the book of Ruth that we talked about last week, this theme of chesed, uh, strong, covenant, unfailing love. That's what this book is about. And so the great question that we're going to be looking at week by week that I think is one of the questions of this book is this, how do we become a community known for its love in a world of suffering, uncertainty, division, and chaos? How do we become people who love in a world of suffering, uncertainty, division, and chaos? That's the question that we'll be looking at through this book throughout this fall. So we're turning this morning to Ruth 1, 1 through 14. We're going to jump right in today. And uh, reading our scripture this morning is someone that I am so excited about introducing you to, and it's Aaron Rose. Aaron is our new pastoral intern. Every uh, year we take on a new pastoral intern, um, someone who is learning about how to be a pastor among us and that we also benefit from their gifts. And Aaron um, is a UVA grad, and she's a student at Gordon-Conwell. Uh, I knew Erin when I was pastoring Easton Fellowship, and we ended up hiring Erin as our director of worship. She is a truly gifted worship leader, teacher, preacher, uh, counselor, caregiver, leader of people. And so I'm super excited about you getting to know her. Um, she'll be with us for the next nine months. You'll be hearing from her. I hope that you'll get to know her and, and celebrate her gifts among us. So let's, let's uh, just prepare our hearts now as we listen to God's word, asking him to open our hearts. Hear God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband, This night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, 
For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we quiet ourselves before your holy word. And we say, come Holy Spirit, come into my weakness, come into all of our weakness, so that we would not just hear your word address us today, but that we would respond to it with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of my favorite old fables is from Aesop. And it's one I've probably told you before uh, in different forms, but I wanted to tell it again because I like it. There was a man and a satyr, which is sort of a, a mythical creature. And this man and satyr were on a journey together and they stopped to camp one night and they build a little fire and the man takes out a pot and fills it with water and it begins to boil. So first the man takes an egg and he drops it in the boiling water and the satyr watches as the egg gets hard. And then the man takes a carrot and the satyr watches as he drops the carrot in the pot and the carrot gets soft. And the satyr is alarmed and terrified, thinking the man is some kind of a wizard. And so he runs away exclaiming, I want nothing to do with a man who with the same water can make one thing hard and another thing soft. Now, I, I don't exactly know what Aesop's intention was in telling this story, what kind of lesson he was sharing, but for me, over the years, it has become a really meaningful parable about the human experience of suffering. Because have you ever noticed how suffering can have such a different effect on one person versus another? One person gets dropped into the boiling water of suffering, and they get hard, like an egg, you know, bitter, cold, cynical. But another person can get dropped into that same boiling pot of suffering and they become soft like the carrot, a person of depth and wisdom and, and beauty. So how could two people who get dropped into the same water come out so differently? That's what suffering does. And from the first verse in this book, we are confronted with suffering and with the sobering message, this is a message that none of us want to hear, that if you want to become a person of greatness, if you want to become a person of chesed love, then you will have to suffer. Suffering is the crucible for love. Nicholas Walterstorff, who lost a son in a climbing accident, once wrote, the valley of suffering is the veil of soul making. It is the place where chesed is born. It is unfortunately the tool that God often uses to make us holy and wise and beautiful. And yet, it does not happen automatically. For many people, suffering has the opposite effect, turning them hard like an egg. So here's my question to you, brothers and sisters, men and women, boys and girls. Here's my question. When suffering comes to your life, when you get dropped into the boiling water, as we all will, are you going to be the egg or are you going to be the carrot? Are you going to get hard and cold and cynical or will you become soft and wise and holy. So here's a story about how we can ensure that we end up more like the carrot and less like the egg. Okay, so let's look at a few things this morning about what the story says about suffering. First of all, it speaks of the inevitability of suffering. The inevitability of suffering. Second, the temptation 
of suffering. And then finally, the redemption of suffering, the inevitability, the temptation, and redemption of suffering. So first, let's look at the inevitability of suffering. Look with me at our text today. In the first five verses of the book of Ruth, we encounter dramatic, intense suffering and loss. Naomi marries a man named Elimelech. They have two sons. They're this perfect little middle-class family, right, living in Israel. Things are going great. But then a famine hits, and the famine is so terrible that they're displaced. They become migrants. They must move to the enemy territory of Moab, which is a premonition of what is to come. And in that foreign land, Elimelech dies. Now, don't let the sparse details of the text fool you. For a woman in the ancient world, remember we said this last week, for a woman in the ancient world, almost her entire value is derived from her relationship to her husband. And so when Naomi's husband dies, it's not just a personal loss. It is a dramatic social loss, a loss of protection, a loss of power, a loss of stability, and all that's just intensified because she's living as a foreigner without her extended family. And so the only thing that gives Naomi any sense of stability and hope after her husband's death is the fact that she has two sons who she believes will take care of her and continue her family's legacy. And so her sons, they meet some nice Moabite girls, get married. Naomi breathes a sigh of relief. She'll be okay. Her sons will have children. They'll provide for her. They'll care for her. As she ages, everything's going to be all right. But then the unthinkable happens. First, both her daughters-in-law are barren. Ten years go by, no grandsons, no grandchildren. In the ancient world, this was a terrifying situation. The future of the family is now threatened with extinction. And then after a decade of living in Moab, the final blow falls, both her sons die. And again, there's very little drama, few details given in the text, but we gotta understand the full impact of this tragedy. For Naomi, this is total personal, social, economic devastation. As a woman living in a foreign land, without husband, without sons, without progenitors, she is plunged into social marginalization. She is stripped of all of her land rights. She is thrown to the bottom of the social heap and her ability to sustain herself is destroyed. In fact, if you look with me at verse five, the narrator writes, the woman is left without her two sons and her husband. She's not even given a name, signifying that she has been stripped of all her identity. Her life is essentially over. Her reason for living, her reason for living the next day is functionally over. This is absolute catastrophe. See, I I want you to feel the weight of this. This is you losing your job and then finding out you have stage four cancer. This is your spouse leaving you and then getting a letter from the bank saying that they're foreclosing on your house. This is you losing all of your money in an economic crash and then your child dies in a car accident. That's what this is. It is total devastation. It is the shattering of all dreams. In a few short verses, Naomi has gone from being a hopeful young mother and wife to being a social pariah, a woman with no identity, bereft of hope, living in a foreign land alone and in pain, just in the first five verses. Now, I call this first point the inevitability of suffering because the very first thing that we are confronted with as we start this book is the truth that our world is shattered. God made this world good and beautiful and whole, marked by love and beauty and justice. He made this world to be the world that we all want, and yet this is not the world we have. 
Human beings rejected God's rule. They turned from his love. And as a result, everything is shattered. We can still see good and beauty and joy and love, but everything is bent and broken. Everything is shot through with disappointment and ruin. And because we live in such a shattered world, pain and suffering and loss are inevitable. Listen, friends, at some point, every single one of us in this room will face inevitably the suffering of loss. Loss of a parent, a mother, a father, loss of a spouse, loss of a child, loss of a marriage, loss of a dream for marriage or a dream for a child, loss of health, loss of friendship, loss of community, loss of a job, loss of a home, financial security, loss of peace, loss of love, loss of hope, loss of life. This is inevitable. And just as no explanation is ever given in this book of why Naomi endured this. So too, when you suffer loss, it is not because of a lack of faith or a lack of prayer or because you somehow deserved it or because you have a worse life than someone else. It's because we live in a shattered world that is not yet healed. That is not yet healed. Now, this is hard because we live in a time in a society when everybody's goal is to be perpetually happy and healthy. And we're told by every commercial that we see and every product that we buy that life is about comfort and the avoidance of pain. And if you experience any discomfort or pain, something must be wrong. You better get it fixed quick. And sometimes we even come to believe that God's job is to increase happiness and to diminish suffering. But friends, listen, there is nothing that gives us a more clear-eyed, realistic picture of the world that we live in than the Bible than stories like this. This is no Disney story, y'all. This is no Pollyanna myth. This is real life. This is our world, a world of hurricanes and falling buildings and cancer and divorce. On no page of this book is it ever suggested that being rich or being powerful or being American or even being a Christian can any way exempt you from trouble and despair. We cannot avoid the brokenness of our world. And Ruth begins starkly with that fact. And yet... In the wild and unexpected purposes of God, love can grow there. Right there in the soil of suffering and the crucible of pain. God is at work even there, maybe even especially there in the pain, in the dark, in the loss. But so much depends on how you respond to it. Whether you're going to be the carrot or whether you're going to be the egg. And so that leads us into the second point, and that's the temptation of suffering because there is a serious temptation that comes when we experience loss and suffering that if we're not careful, can lead us into bitterness and make us hard like the egg. You know, suffering is often cited as a serious obstacle to belief in God. We've all heard the question, you know, how can God exist in a world of so much suffering? But in some ways, if you think about it, suffering is actually a bigger problem for people who believe in God than people who don't. Because if you don't believe in God, then suffering is totally logical, right? If God doesn't exist, Think about it. If God doesn't exist, the most logical thing in the world is brutality and meaningless suffering and pain because no one's ultimately in charge of the universe who's bringing order. But if you believe in God, suddenly you have a problem, don't you? How do you reconcile your belief in a good and powerful God with the reality of real trouble, pain, and sorrow in your life and in the world? How do you reconcile those two beliefs? That problem surfaces here immediately. Look at the names given here in this text. We see at verse 1 that this man and his family are first from Bethlehem, which means 
house of bread. And yet, here's the irony, this family is leaving the house of bread. Why? Because there is no bread. (laughs) And then we come across this man named Elimelech, which if you were an ancient Hebrew reader, you would know to mean my God is king. And yet here they are fleeing the land where God is supposed to be king, but they can't survive there. And as soon as they get to their new home, my God is king dies. And so here you are right in the, in the beginning of this chapter, you're presented with this fact that there is no bread in the house of bread and my God, the king is dead. Do you see? Reality is mocking God. Our beliefs about the, tr- the goodness and the power of God are clashing with the brutality of this woman's situation. And that's where the temptation of suffering arises for you and me. This is what often happens, that when you experience a serious degree of suffering or loss or pain, you can easily begin to interpret it as God's distance, God's malice, or even God's absence. Because reality is mocking God. You can see this temptation rising up in Naomi. Look at her cry in verse 13. She says, it is exceedingly bitter for me because the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, she cannot see any point, any purpose to her suffering. And so in her mind, she has interpreted that to mean that God is no longer the God of love for her, no longer the God of chesed. He has now become her enemy. The truth of his love is now profoundly in question in her life. And this is the temptation that you and I all face when we suffer. Look, I've dealt with this myself. I know you have. We hear that God is good. We hear that he's loving. We hear that he wills everything to our good purposes. We hear that he loves us and wants the best for us. We just read it in the psalm this morning, Psalm 121. He will not let your foot slip. But then when you suffer, you actually look at your life. You look at the real suffering and pain in the world. And somehow it does not, reality does not reflect the truth we believe about the goodness of God. Reality is mocking him. You pray for your marriage. And it still falls apart. You pray for your kids to come back. They still, they move further away. You pray for the cancer to stop. It just spreads all the more. It makes no sense. God is silent. It's like, it's like being in the hospital and you're kidding to call the nurse button over and over and over again and nobody's coming. No one's responding. Is there anybody even out there? Is anybody even at the nurse's station? Why does God do nothing? See, that's the question that we're all faced with. And I want you to see, brother, I want you to see, sister, that it's not a wrong question to ask. Naomi asks it, Job asks it, the psalmist asks it, but you gotta be careful. Because if you don't deal with that question in the right way, it will lead you into darkness and despair and ultimately a cold heart. Ted Turner, in his autobiography, writes about the fact that um, as a kid, he was a Christian. He actually went to my high school, a Christian school. And he was raised as a Christian and he was a follower of Jesus. But in his autobiography, he writes about the fact that after college, his mother got cancer and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed for her to be healed and she died. And so Turner concluded that God cannot be trusted. He turned away and he never looked back. And that is the temptation of suffering. And that is the temptation that you and I all face when we suffer. Now, here's why this story is so beautiful. Because even as the narrator lets us raise these serious questions. There are these tiny little hints that something else is going on in the story. So look with me again. Verse six mentions that the Lord has visited his people and given them food, a tiny suggestion that God is still involved in the lives of his people. He's doing something. 
Later in the chapter, there's this throwaway mention that the barley harvest was beginning, this subtle suggestion that life is growing even under the death of the barren ground, that even while Naomi's situation is barren, God is behind the scenes at work bringing life. And then, of course, there's this mention here in verse 2 of Bethlehem of Judah, which any ancient reader would have immediately been bells ringing in their head, the birthplace of David the king, the ancestor of this barren woman, Naomi, that somehow, miraculously, out of the horror of the situation, God will bring the king of Israel, who we ultimately know to becomes the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. All that is happening under the surface, but Naomi doesn't know it. Naomi has no clue. She's just in chapter one. And do you see what the story's trying to tell us? When we suffer, we think to ourselves, I cannot see any good in this, so there must not be any good in this. God is absent. God is my enemy. But what this story shows is this, that God may be hidden, he may be silent, but he is not absent. He is not absent. When it looks like he is doing nothing, he is doing something. Can I say that again, friends? When it looks like he is doing nothing, he is doing something. But in our limited human perspective, we cannot possibly have the capacity to see what in the world the good Lord may be up to. You know, I came to realize this when I became a parent because um, we, had our, we had this, our little baby girl, never been parents before. And when she was about six months old, she got a virus, a very serious virus. She got sicker and sicker and sicker. She wasn't eating. She wasn't nursing. And so ultimately, our doctor said, get her to the ER. So we took her to the ER, and the nurses attempted to put a, a little needle, an IV, into her tiny veins, and they were so small they couldn't do it. So the doctor says, Dad, I need you to hold this baby down. And so I'm holding this little six-month-old child on the table, holding her down as this nurse tries to weasel this needle into her vein. And then her eyes are so big, and I will never forget her staring up at me. And I know what this little girl is thinking. She is staring at me saying, I thought you loved me. <laughs> I thought you loved me. And I have to feel the helplessness of a father to have no conceivable way to communicate to this little baby girl that what is actually happening is for her healing, for her good. Have you ever felt like that? Pinned down on the table? Needles working their way into your veins. See, when we suffer, we ask why. And sometimes behind that question is the belief that I know what's best for my life. And if you love me, God, you would not let me be going through this. But God, listen, friends, God is far more powerful and unmanageable and out of our control than we could ever imagine. At times, let me tell you the truth about this, friends. He will appear to be checked out. He will allow things to happen that you cannot understand. He will at times allow things to rage in your life, and you're going to feel like you're on the table. You're going to feel like you're about to go down. And he won't do things in a way that makes sense to you. But does that mean... He doesn't love you? Does it mean that he's out of control? Does it mean that he's somehow checked out? No, it just means that God is God and you are not. And that he is infinitely wiser than you, infinitely more knowledgeable about your life than you, and he is so powerful and so beyond our control that he has reasons to allow you to suffer that you and I will never understand. We'll never understand. But that is the temptation. It is always there when you suffer to reject that truth to interpret suffering as God's absence or malice and to walk away, to walk away. Naomi is facing that temptation more than she's ever faced it before. And we're on the edge of our seats. What's she gonna do? 
Is she going to become like the egg? Is she going to walk away? Is she going to become hard and bitter? What's going to happen? And this amazing story shows us the redemption of suffering. What ultimately saves her from becoming like the egg? Just a few things. A few things happen in these verses that saves her. First of all, lament. Lament. You know, there's a lie in the church that being a Christian means you must always be happy. I'm too blessed to be stressed, right? <laughs> Everything's great. The Lord, praise be the Lord. He's good all the time, right? We, and, and there is some truth to that. We have great reason to be joyful as Christians. But when that, that becomes the mantra that holds a community together, it creates communities of pretending in which everyone, nobody's really struggling. Everybody's happy. Everybody's attractive and nice smelling and pleasant. And when bad things do happen, right, we throw out these little, these little platitudes like God's in control. And we're, and, 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 and we're highly uncomfortable with pain as a community. We're highly uncomfortable with people who are actually grieving because deep inside us, we're afraid that it would somehow suggest that God is not ultimately in control of all things. And I love Naomi because she does not give in to this nonsense. Look at her. She boldly states, God is my enemy. He's turned against me. And I love it. She goes back to her hometown at the end of chapter one, and all the ladies of the town come out. Can you imagine? Just picture this in your imagination. The ladies in the town come out. They say, is that you, Naomi? She says, nope. <laughs> Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. Because my life is bitter. God has botched up my life. He killed my husband. He killed my sons. I'm broke. I got nothing to my name. That's who I am. Bitter. What if somebody said that to you after the church today? Well, you said, how are you, honey? Right? We would never ask Naomi to be our speaker at the women's conference. You know? <laughs> we, we, we don't want her sharing her story in our, in our parish groups. Right? Because we're about victory. <laughs> Joy. Right? But listen. Listen. She is doing something holy. Godly. She's practicing this ancient practice of lament. It's when the psalmist cry out, why have you forsaken me? It's when Habakkuk cries out, why, oh God, have you stopped listening to the cries of your people? See, lament is people being honest about their pain and crying out to God over the brokenness of the world. And Naomi, instead of stuffing her pain and putting on a happy face or pretending like she has faith, she is standing broken for her community, admitting who she is rather than pretending to be someone she's not. And the result is that her honesty becomes a doorway of hope for a whole community, as we will see in the coming weeks. Listen, friends, people who live for happiness cannot admit pain, and they certainly cannot bear it for others. They never will. And so when you hurt, hurt. Hurt openly in the presence of God. Address him. Tell him how you feel. Share honestly in the community. And I want to exhort you, and I actually think many of you in our third family, do this remarkably well. But I want to continue to exhort us. We must be a community that is safe for people to grieve, for people to be broken, for people to cry out in a real way about their sorrow. Sometimes, and, and you know this if you suffered, sometimes the church can be one of the worst places to suffer. But we are not a fake religious club. We are a community of real Christians who bear and are not afraid of the pain and sorrow of the world, and yet do it together because we know the redemption of all things is near. That's who we are as God's people. So stop pretending. We've got to be safe. 
The other thing that saves Naomi is community. Now, we don't hear much yet about Ruth, but we see this remarkable statement in verse 14, Ruth clung to her. It's the same verb that's used of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 when they clung to his, he clung to his wife. Listen, <laughs> Naomi never asked for this woman. In fact, she clearly doesn't even want this woman to be accompanying her. And yet, this foreign woman from Moab, an enemy of Israel, becomes the most powerful vessel of God's chesed in Naomi's life. And listen, through the touch and the hug and the embrace and the voice of Ruth, Naomi comes to know the touch and the hug and the embrace and the voice of God. You know when you suffer, you feel like God is absent. That you can't hear him. You can't touch him. You don't know where he is. But listen, it may just be that the voice and the touch of God are coming to you, but they are coming to you through the voice and the touch of one of his people. You know, I love what Carolyn Custis James says. She says, oftentimes in our suffering, we feel so alone and we are dusting to find the fingerprints of God and we end up finding the fingerprints of his people. People who are showing up for you, who are clinging to you, who are praying for you, loving you. So look, I know some of you are actually really, really suffering right now because there's a couple of situations that are really intense. And I want to urge you, as much as you may want to withdraw, stay connected to the people of God. And on the flip side, one of the most powerful ways that you, brother, that you, sister, can become, come alongside those who are truly suffering is not to try to explain their pain, not to tell them what they should be thinking and feeling, but to be like Ruth, to cling, to cling, to hold fast, to touch, to embrace. It very well may be that through your voice and through your touch, the suffering one may come to know the touch and the voice of God. She's saved by community. And then finally, she's saved by hope. (sighs) Naomi takes my breath away. Because even in the midst of her pain and her sorrow and her desolation, she holds on to God. She has this tiny glimmer of hope, this news that God has visited his people, and it keeps her going. She picks up everything she has. She makes this pilgrimage back towards the God that she knows, even as she cries out against him. Even as she holds him responsible for her pain, she makes a beeline towards him. She exhorts her daughters-in-law to him. She keeps moving. She puts one foot in front of the other. She points her life towards God, even though she is not at all sure that God loves her and is taking care of her. She hopes, she holds on, even though she does not know how this story is going to end. You see this, friends? This is no Disney story. This is not groundless human optimism. This is real, divine hope. Naomi, hoping, hanging on, even when her world is falling apart. It takes my breath away. And that's what you got to do sometimes. Sometimes you get the sucker punch. The day you get the phone call from your doctor. The day you get the note from your spouse. The day you wake up and realize that you hate your life. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do when that day comes? Well, here's what Naomi does. She holds on to God. She does not give in ultimately to bitterness. She accepts her crucible of suffering. She hangs in there with the story that God has permitted in her life for no explainable reason. And she tries to put one foot in front of the other, holding on to hope.
holding on to hope. That's what she did. And how much more can you do this if you know Jesus Christ, friends? How much more? I've told you about my friend Jerry before, but he's just the most remarkable person. I can't stop telling about him, so I'll tell you again. But my friend Jerry Sitzer, who's a professor at Whitworth College in Washington, and about 20 years ago, he was in a minivan driving home with his wife and his mother and all of his children, and a drunk driver crossed the median and struck his van, and in one instant, his wife, his mother, and daughter were all tragically killed. Three generations wiped out in a single accident. What do you say about such things? And a few months later, he was driving home with his son, his little son, and his son suddenly said in the back seat to his father, Daddy, if mommy is in heaven and if she can see us, then how could she be happy when she sees that we are so sad? Jerry sat there for a while. And then he said what could only be a supernatural inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says to his little son, because mommy sees the way the story ends. And it's a happy ending. It's a happy ending. And let me tell you, friends, no one could ever say that unless they know Jesus. Nobody could ever say that. Never. And that's what we know. We know Jesus. We know that he came for us in our pain. We know that God drew near to us in our suffering and sorrow. We know that he loved us so much that he actually took our suffering and sorrow upon himself, dying the truly and only abandoned death in human history. We know that he took our evil and pain down into the pit of hell. We know that he rose from the dead to triumph over sin and death, guaranteeing the day when death and evil and suffering will be defeated. We know that he ascended into heaven and right now he is interceding, praying on your behalf before the right hand of the Father. We know that he sends the Spirit to intercede and be with you, the presence of God with you in your pain. We know that he promises to come again and he will take all the shattered pieces of this world and he will make them whole. We know all of those things. If we don't know anything else in the world, we know this. We know the end of the story. We know that even when you are barely holding on to God, he holds fast to you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we wait. Because you're only in chapter one. And we live suspended. This is where we live. We live suspended between a fallen world and the coming kingdom. We live between our current shattered brokenness and a God who calls us to trust him. You will never have all the facts, you will never be given all the answers. And so what do we do? We move ahead like Naomi. We wait, trusting in the slow work of God. We wait being honest about our pain and holding one another up in our sorrow. We wait believing that even if there is no sign of God on the horizon, that he is at work even then. We wait in hope, clinging to God's promise to us in Jesus, who has died and risen and has promised to make all things new. We wait. We wait. We wait in hope. Let me close with a beautiful quote from one of my favorite theologians, Australian Benjamin Myers. He writes this. Beneath the surface of things, there lurks an invitation, gentle and alluring. 
that even in sadness and misfortune, there is always rising up as if from hidden wells the promise of peace. And that the final word, listen to this, the final word spoken over this world and over each human life will be a word of joy. It will be a word of joy.